July of 2020, there was an article written by Dr. Christine Carter, who's connected with the Greater Good Science Center, and it was published in their journal, and the title of it was, Seven Ways to Cope with Uncertainty. What should we do when everything feels so out of control? A very timely article. Listen to how she begins the article. Living with so much uncertainty is hard. Human beings crave information about the future in the same way we crave food and other primary rewards. Our brains perceive ambiguity as a threat and they try to protect us by diminishing our ability to focus on anything other than creating certainty. So how can we best cope? when everything feels so out of control. And she gives seven strategies. And I I like them. I'm not usually a person of lists, but I like them. She begins, first of all, by saying, don't resist. Instead, try to practice acceptance. And acceptance, particularly self-acceptance, is one of the counterintuitive secrets to happiness. It's about meeting life where it is and moving forward from there. There's so many things that you and I can't control. Why get all hung up about it and and not move on? Invest in yourself. You see, when we underinvest in our bodies, our minds, or spirits, we basically destroy our most essential tools for leading our best lives. One of the byproducts of my weight loss and my walking is that I have far more energy, my thinking is clear, I am able to work more hours without being absolutely worn out. Invest in yourself. Find healthy comfort items. What she's talking about is instead of turning to social media and junk food or other escapes to soothe our rattled nerves, we would do better if we would just preemptively comfort ourselves in healthy ways. Don't believe everything you think. That's right, I didn't say don't believe everything you hear. This one caught me off guard. Don't believe everything you think. Because in uncertain times, it's particularly important not to believe thoughts that argue for the worst case scenario. And sometimes our negativity can set us up for failure. Number five, pay attention. Even when it feels like everything is out of control, we can still control what we pay attention to. Number six, stop looking for someone to rescue you. Interestingly, rescuers tend to be better enablers than saviors. Rescuers tend to give us permission to avoid taking up responsibility. We shouldn't be enablers. We can't be rescuers. So stop looking for someone to rescue you. And then seven, 
find meaning in the chaos. Meaning and purpose are wellsprings of hope. I mean, we've been talking about that for 14 weeks now. And when the world feels scary or uncertain, knowing what meaning we have for others and feeling a sense of purpose can ground us better than anything else. I got a phone call yesterday from a high school classmate. Phone call, not a text, an actual voice to voice. And she said, happy birthday. And uh, I was shocked. I mean, she went on to talk about how she was involved in a committee that's planning on our 50th reunion from high school. We're going to have it this fall. Uh, but, you know, just just a call to say, hey, I want you to know one thing. And it was a positive word of encouragement. So don't just wait for this ordeal to be all over. Don't be resigned to your misery. While we wait, let's look for miracles. How can can we make a real life out of all of this? A life that is alive and vibrant. Though others have said basically the same thing. Benjamin Franklin, in a 1979 letter, note the date, 1979. Here's what he wrote. Our, I'm sorry, 1789, I'm dyslexic. (laughs) Same numbers, four numbers, just in different order. 1789. Here's what he wrote. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. You know, in light of what we have just heard this week, I think Franklin would be disappointed, but I don't think he'd have been surprised. Because he would finish that sentence in that letter by adding, but in this world nothing is certain except death and taxes. Now let me go back for a second to what Dr. Carter said. Meaning and purpose are wellsprings of hope. And when the world feels scary or uncertain, knowing what meaning we have for others and feeling a sense of purpose can ground us better than anything else. The Apostle John realized that all the way back in the first century. Meaning and purpose... And know once again what I pointed out for the past two weeks. John uses purpose statements repeatedly. He gives us clues as to how we can find meaning. Inclusion, not isolation. The feeling of being loved. And in John, the Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, as John is sharing the purpose he had for writing his Gospel... He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written. These are written. Do you know that there are more fragments, manuscripts, 
of the Bible than there are of any of the other historical documents dating to within the first 40 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Historically unbelievable. But we have them. And we can read them. Because John writes, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life. Real life. And then in his first letter that we've been going through, as a part of our text for today, in 1 John 5.13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, you may know, it's a word of certainty, you may know that you have eternal life. So just just who is John talking about when he says, to you who believe? Well, that's a part of the certainty that's found in John's writings that I love. He tells us that there are characteristics of God's children. Those who are born of God, born of Him. God's children, he writes, true believers are people who are not just going through the motions but the man or woman who practices righteousness. Chapter 229, verse 29. Practices righteousness. Makes it a part of their daily routine, their daily schedule, their disciplines of life. They're not trying to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. In fact, though they're not perfect, they're not involved in the practice of sinning. Chapter 3. And more than once, he reminds us of the importance of love. Someone who truly knows God loves the brothers, chapter 3. And it's so important that he repeats it again in the very next chapter. Whoever loves is born of God. And last, but certainly not least, we noticed this last week, that all of this leads to a victorious life. True believers, John says, the child of God is the person who overcomes the world. That's who he's talking about. That's the checklist. So what is the issue that John is addressing? Since that will help us really understand why he's providing the evidence that he does. So let's look at the testimony that he lays before us, provided to us by God, inspired Word of God, written by John. The text, 1 John chapter 5, 6-12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God. That's why I titled my sermon, by the way, The Testimony of God. Because the Spirit, the water, and the blood are God's testimony to us of who Jesus is. 
This is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what's the issue? Well, I think the issue is twofold. And it goes back uh, just one verse when basically John is saying who the overcomer is. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God. The fully human Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. And in this paragraph, verses 6 to 12, John is elaborating the same point that he stated briefly in one verse of the Gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. We already read it once. You see, it's all about identity. It's all about divinity. The gospel, recording the words and works of Jesus, was John's testimony to him as the Christ, the Son of God. And the purpose of that testimony was so that you may believe, and the result of faith is that by believing you may have life in His name. The way to life is faith. The way to faith is testimony. I mean, did you hear how many times in just those verses John used the word testimony? And it's throughout John's writings. And so the sequence of thought is the same here in 1 John as it was back in the Gospel. God has borne witness to His Son in order that we may believe in Him and so may have Him, and by having Him may have life. And, by the way, there's really three important truths that are taught here in just these verses about eternal life. First of all, it's not a prize that we have earned or that we could earn, but an undeserved gift. Secondly, it's found in Christ so that in order to give us life, God gave us both the Son and the testimony. And thirdly, the gift of life in Christ is a present possession. We may have eternal life. Say, now wait a minute, preacher. Heaven's in the future. Is it? The basic teaching of the Bible is that if you die twice, you're only going to... I mean, excuse me, if you're born twice, you're only going to have to die once. But if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. If you are born physically and born spiritually in the waters of baptism, you don't have to worry about physical death. It's so refreshing to me 
to stand by the bed of someone who knows they are gravely ill and hear them say, if I have to continue to lay in a bed like this, I would rather go and be with the Lord. And Phyllis got her wish. We don't have to be afraid of death. It's a present possession. But since the age to come, which is what the word eternal really means, when he says uh, it's, it's, we have eternal life, it literally means life that belongs to the age, the age to come. And since the age to come is broken into the present with Christ, the life of the age to come, eternal life, can be received in the here and now. So what is the evidence that he presents? What is it that points to the fact that Jesus is the Christ? I've got to quit pushing my finger and stay on track. What's the evidence? Various interpretations have been given regarding these phrases that are in the text that we read. In fact, one very good conservative commentator, a guy by the name of Plummer, calls this the most perplexing passage in the letter. And I think there's no doubt that John was using phraseology, he was using words, he was using images that were already familiar to his readers. Either through his own teaching or possibly through the teaching of the false teachers. And I don't think it's really that hard for us to understand. The most satisfactory interpretation that I've seen, which I have come to believe, and it was actually first given by one of the theologians by the name of Tertullian way back then. The water refers to the baptism of Jesus. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? As he was coming up out of the water, there was a testimony given, wasn't there? A voice from heaven. This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And what else happened according to the Scriptures? The Spirit, in a form of a dove, came down and lighted upon him, anointed with the Spirit. And the blood points to his death the crucifixion and I mean in his own words he yielded up his spirit he said it is finished that to me is not only the best understanding of the, these phrases but in keeping the, with the rest of the biblical record it's the only understanding that I can see that meets all of the rest of the biblical scriptures the only meaning of the expression that makes any sense uh, of what one very early writer by the name of Irenaeus disclosed regarding who these heretics were that John was dealing with. Somebody by the name of Serenthus and his followers. Now let me tell you just a little bit about them. Because I usually don't spend much time on other religions and other people's beliefs. I feel like if we know what we believe, then we won't have any problem when they say what they believe.
But to understand where John's coming from, I think we need to know that those people distinguish between Jesus and the Christ. They held that Jesus was a mere man born of Mary and Joseph in natural wedlock upon whom the Christ descended at the baptism. That's when Jesus the human became the Christ. And from whom the Christ departed before the cross because God the Messiah can't die on a cross. And according to that theory of the false teachers, Jesus was united with Christ at His baptism, but overcame and separated before the cross. And so John is taking a moment to refute this fundamental error by saying, knowing that Jesus was the Christ before and during the baptism and during and after the cross, we understand pre-existence of Jesus as God and the resurrected Jesus who said to Thomas here's my body go ahead and touch it he wasn't a ghost I don't understand it but it was a resurrected body John is stressing The unity of the earthly career of Jesus. He who came from heaven, that is, is the same as he who passed through the water and the blood. That is, he and only he. And believing in him and only him will we be able to become overcomers? So, we're presented with a a choice. Because the result of having the proper true belief is that the believer has life. Look again at verses 11 and 12. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Not whoever has a son will have that life someday in the future when we die. We have that life now. And when all the evidence is considered, God who gave us life now, both in terms of abundant life and life in the age to come, That is the testimony against the false teachers whom John was opposing. And you know what? Their creed, although it has no adherence today, still has many people who follow it. There are many, many people who deny the Incarnation. Whether or not they believe that the person of Jesus underwent a change in His baptism... They deny that Jesus, the human Jesus, was in fact God in the flesh. And that's not a trivial error. It actually undermines the foundations of the Christian faith and and robs us of salvation. 
If the Son of God did not take to Himself our nature in His birth, if He was not human like we are in all ways, then there is no way that through His death He can reconcile us to God. John emphasizes not just that He came, but especially that He came by means of, through the water and the blood. The water, we've talked about, but what about the blood? What's the Old Testament say? There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So, you know, when we look at all of this, God's testimony concerning Jesus is not only that He's the divine human Christ, but also that He's the life giver, the Savior of the world. Not only is He the Son, but that in Him is life. And interestingly, eternal life, in the Greek language, they don't do word structure the way we do in our sentences. You know, we we tend to have this noun, verb, indirect object, direct object. We have these patterns that we basically follow. In the Greek, you knew what part of speech it was by the ending of the word. And if they wanted to emphasize something, they put that right at the beginning of the sentence. And eternal life is in that emphatic position. The testimony that he's giving is that eternal life, which God gave us, he gave us by giving us the Son. Now listen to me. I'm about to conclude. The alternative is really clear and uncompromising. We really, I don't think, can escape its logic. Eternal life is in God's Son and can be found nowhere else. It is just as impossible to have life without having Christ as it is to have Christ without having all, thereby having life also. And yet, what have we heard over the last couple of years? We've heard religious leaders from other Protestant or the Catholic denomination say, well, you know, there are other ways to get to God. There are other ways to get to heaven than through Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. John says, the Son is the life. So let me go back to the statement I made. We have a choice to make. There's a passage that Paul cites in Romans 10. It's a passage about our accessibility to Christ and the gospel. There's no need, he said, to go to heaven to bring Christ down or to descend to the depths to bring Him back up. He's here. He's among us. The incarnation and the resurrection have already occurred and don't need to be repeated. But instead, there is a powerful, life-changing message involved in the gospel, and that is the word of faith that's to be believed in the heart and confessed with the mouth. And just as the gospel message represents the very essence and the very purpose of Jesus Christ, so the word of covenant, Moses said, is as close and authoritative as the Lord Himself is. And that's what Paul was referring to. That word, again, was the one being offered to the Israelites. But it's a command that must be acted upon here and now. 
we have a choice to make. And the options are really pretty clear. Acceptance and obedience would bring life and prosperity, but rejection and disobedience would result in death and destruction. I am enamored, but also appalled. I am enamored and appalled by people who can say, well, it doesn't matter how I live anymore. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior back so-and-so. And, you know, now that I believe Him, I, I can't fall away from Him. Really? What about Hymenaeus and Alexander? What about Rufus? What about all these people in the Bible that it talks about who were apart and who have left? Who had faith, but their faith was shipwrecked. Now, we have a choice to make. And I think that's why in, in a very succinct manner, Moses challenged the nation both to both the blessings inherent in undertaking the privileges as well as the responsibilities of the covenant relationship and the curses that must inevitably follow should that gracious offer be rejected. My mom and dad had a will. It wasn't a huge will. My dad was in ministry all his life. They did have a home and it sold and sold for far more than they paid for it because of the neighborhood that they bought in and how that neighborhood came up. But they had a will. The will said that each of us five children were to receive something. what the will said. But what did I have to do to receive what it said I could accept? I had to do and continue to have to do what that will said. I have to be obedient to the terms of that will. We've been left a will. We've been left a promise. Eternal life. But God says right here, Moses said, Jesus said, John said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't know me. So what's your choice? Life and good or death and evil? Let's pray.